I want to extend my appreciation to Luca and Annalisa, also to Pastor Giuseppe for the opportunity to come to London and to speak about what is very dear to the heart of God. Because the Bible teaches that these festivals, they are His festivals. They are called My Appointed Days. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But before we open up Scripture, let us take a moment and ask God to, to bless this place, to bless the leadership of this congregation, and to bless our time together this evening. May it be honorable and pleasing to our Lord and Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Father God, we, we exalt your name. We give you thanks for you are indeed the Holy One of Israel. We ask as we come before you tonight in seeking you, that you would be our teacher, that the Holy Spirit, that he would help us understand your words, and that we would be individuals that want to learn so that we can obey and submit to your will and your purposes. Father God, you are a gracious Heavenly Father. You have loved us perfectly by sending your Son to be not just our atonement, but for him to be our eternal redemption. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the Day of Atonement is indeed one of the Lord's appointed days. Now, in Hebrew, that term appointed is the word moed. And that word speaks about something that God has designated, something that he has set aside with significance, with a purpose. And therefore, these festivals, as they're oftentimes referred to, they, they are designated for a purpose, a significant purpose. And that word moed comes from that same word, which means to put something of significance in a specific location. In other words, that word can mean a destination. And what we learn from that is this, that through these appointed days, we find ourselves being positioned by God when we understand them and when we apply the truth of them to our life. God places us in a designation. He gives us his mindset so that we can understand his purposes. Now, that same word for an appointed day also relates to that concept, the theological term in Hebrew, predestination. And what we know is this, that predestination is something that is only relevant if you are in that new covenant relationship with God through Messiah. And what he's telling us is this, that when we're in that new covenant relationship, God has designated us to be perfect. We're going to see tonight that through the study of the book of Hebrews, that this work of our high priest, Yeshua, is a work that brings about perfection. Those aren't my words, but the words of the writer of Hebrews. 
Now, when we look at Hebrews, and we can begin with chapter 3 for a moment, we see something. We are told that Yeshua is our high priest, but it's interesting because no sooner does he say that, he begins to speak about Moses. And we have to ask the question, why? Why speak about Moses? Why not speak about first Aaron, the first high priest? But he doesn't. And the reason for that is simple. He wants us to realize that our high priest, like Moses, was related to redemption. And why is that important? Because when we hear the term atonement, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we need to realize what that word atonement means. In Hebrew, Kippur or Kapara is simply a covering. So an atonement simply covers up sin. It doesn't remove it. It doesn't eradicate it. It's still there, and atonement has great limitations. For example, this coming Wednesday, on the Day of Atonement, we will pray in the synagogue from this Yom Kippur until next Yom Kippur, which means that the work of that atonement is limited, according to Judaism, for just one year. And what is the, the relevance of atonement? It keeps God's judgment at a distance. It doesn't remove the need for judgment. It simply postpones it for a limited amount of time. But redemption is very different. Redemption is not a covering, but redemption is a removal. So there's no longer a need for judgment. Through redemption, we find that judgment is no longer needed. What a blessing. Now, there's something else we see in Hebrews chapter 3. It speaks about Moses as the servant. But when it speaks about our high priest, he doesn't use the term servant. He uses the term son. Why? Well, if you read those first few verses in Hebrews chapter 3, it speaks about the fact that, that he's the son, and with son there is an inheritance. And guess what? If you read that carefully, you know what he's going to inherit? You and me. Through the work of the great high priest, Yeshua, he has an inheritance, and we are his inheritance. And furthermore, when we look on, we find that he is different than all the other types of high priests because his priesthood, he never sinned. And therefore, he could secure something better for us. As I said, one of the things we're going to see later on in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to see that he secures through a new covenant, a different covenant, he is going to secure for us perfection. And that Hebrew word for perfection is a kingdom word. When we look at the scripture, there are several different words that are always related to the kingdom, and perfection is one of that.
Now, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you at this time to open them up to the book of Hebrews and chapter 7. We're going to look at a few verses just in chapter 7, and we're going to see what God is going to teach us through His Word concerning the Day of Atonement and the great high priest who is called the priest of our confession, meaning that when we confessed Him and we recognize His service as high priest, there's going to be a wonderful outcome. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. It begins speaking about a different high priest. Notice what it says. For this Malkisedek. Now, two Hebrew words. The first one, Malki, is a combined word. It means my king. And Sedek is the Hebrew word righteous. And realize that the term righteous is related to the kingdom. For example, it says in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. So when we speak about righteous, we always need to think about the kingdom. And we're going to see that Malchizedek is connected to the kingdom. Look again at verse 1. For this Malchizedek, the king of, and in Hebrew we would say Shalem, believe in your Bibles, it may say Selim. But it's a word which means that which is in its completeness, that which is in its fullness, that which is whole or perfect. So it's very significant. Although we think of that as a location, and that location is Jerusalem, but it relates to, once more, the fulfillment of the purposes, the plans, the will of God. So this king of Shalem, he is priest of the Most High God. Now hear that. He's not someone that simply does the work that relates, that points to, but he is priest of the Most High God. And notice the context. What we're doing tonight is what the writer of Hebrews admonishes us to learn, and that is the benefits of Yeshua being our high priest. What is it that we can expect? Well, notice the context. Speaking about Melchizedek, who went out to meet Avraham when he was coming back from, the next word, the slaughter. Now, that is from war, where he was victorious. Now, this is important because the context for understanding Melchizedek is victory, a defeat over the enemy. We need to remember that. And he's called not just the king of Salem, but the king of righteousness because victory, hear this, Victory produces righteousness. God gives us victory, His victory, in order that we might live righteously, live perfectly. So it says, this Melchizedek, who went out to meet Abraham when he was coming back from the slaughter, and notice this slaughter of other kings, 
these other kings were defeated. And what did Melchizedek do? Something that's unusual. It says that he, Melchizedek, blessed him, blessed Abraham. Now, do you see something different? We're going to see in a few minutes that there's a different type of priesthood, what we normally think of, the Levitical priests. But the Levitical priests, they had a very different service. Why? Because they served in the tabernacle and then in the temple, and they received, hear this, they would receive from the people and then offer it to who? God. But Melchizedek did something different. Within the context of victory, he came and he blessed Abraham. How did he do that? He took from God this, this bread and wine. He took from God and blessed Abraham. Do you see the change? It wasn't man giving to God, but it was God giving to, to humanity. That's different. That's not how the Levitical priesthood would function. And we see that Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek by, by giving to him a tithe of everything. And notice what it says. And his name being interpreted as the king of righteousness or the king of Shalem, which is the king of, notice what it says, the king of peace. Now, again, that word peace, understand it biblically. It's always related, biblical peace is always related to the will of God. What's the context? When we look at these first few verses, our high priest, Yeshua, he is going to bless us. He is going to take and give to us in order that we can have peace, meaning that we can be recipients of, of the blessings and the promises of God that we can live, and we'll see this in a moment, for eternity. And by the way, that word eternity is also a kingdom word, that we can live forever with the peace of God and the righteousness of God, and we'll see where that's going to lead us in a moment. Look at verse 3. Now there's a uniqueness to Melchizedek. It says, he is without father, without mother, without genealogy, and his days, concerning his days, there is no beginning to his life and no end. For he is, Melchizedek is not Yeshua. Many people teach that. This verse tells us he's not. It says, for he is like, he is not the Son of Man, but he is like the Son of God as he remains in his priesthood for how long? Forever. It is an unchangeable priesthood. And whenever, is, whenever something is unchangeable, whenever something is eternal, it's kingdom-related and it's perfect. It has no need to change. Now, all of this is being told to us so that we understand the work 
of our great high priest, Yeshua, that he comes from a different order, from a different standard, and we'll see what that is. Drop down, if you would, to that same seventh chapter, to verse 11. Therefore, if, notice this next word, perfection. What God is interested in is us experiencing perfection, becoming perfect. Now, I mentioned a, a few minutes ago the term predestination. And predestination, biblically, has to do with God designating us for perfection. And it's only relevant for who? For those who are in that new covenant. God has already determined, He has already set it in order that every believer eventually is going to be perfect in perfect righteousness, in perfect holiness, in perfection, in entirety. Why? Because of the work of Yeshua, our high priest. So look again at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were by the means of the priesthood of the sons of Levi. Now hear this. There's going to be a difference. Yeshua is not connected as a priest through the sons of Levi. Why? Well, he tells us, in that priesthood, it involved, it was related to the Torah. Therefore, because perfection did not come through the Torah. Now, I love the Torah. The Torah is true. It is holy. It is good. But realize something. Through the Torah, righteousness is not imparted to you. All that the Torah does is that it teaches us, it declares, it defines what is righteous. It doesn't make one righteous. The Torah cannot tell us how to become perfect. It simply tells us what perfection is, what is righteousness. It doesn't mediate it. This is what he's saying. Therefore, if perfection was through the priesthood of the sons of Levi, for in it was given the Torah to the people. It says, why therefore would there need to be existing another priesthood? And notice this, not a priesthood through Aaron and his sons, but notice what it says, a priesthood through the order of who? Melchizedek. And to understand this, we need to remember all that he told us, and that's this that through Melchizedek, we're going to find perfection, we're going to find righteousness, and we're going to find that the purposes of God are fulfilled. Not in the priesthood of the Levites, but in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then it says, look down to verse 12. For being a change in the priesthood, God brought about change. Now, why is that? Well, remember what it says in the book of Revelation. 
John receives that vision of the new Jerusalem. And he looks at it and he says, behold, all things are new. Now, why is it new? Very simple. Because this world was corrupted and stained with sin. And there's only one solution for sin. It's not atonement. Atonement covers sin. It does not destroy sin. What's better than atonement? Redemption. And through redemption, only through redemption, can we experience the purposes of God being, and hear this, being restored and when we look at the writer of Hebrews, it speaks about not just redemption, but eternal redemption. That's a kingdom redemption. So through the priesthood of Levites, it couldn't be established. Therefore, because a change was necessary, look at what it says in verse 12. For a change in the priesthood because of the need. There was a necessity and therefore also there was a change in the law. What law? Well, now we have a new law, a law that's based upon the Spirit. Now, people, and I said earlier, and I'll say again, I love the Torah. But the Torah, when you apply it to your life, you know what it speaks to me? Unrighteousness. It tells me what is righteous, but because now I know what is righteous, it declares how unrighteous I am. I, in my flesh, cannot live according to the order of God. Well, let me just ask you a question. Biblically, and you don't have to go far in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we see what Better yet, who was present in order to bring about the order of God, the will of God, and who is that? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Therefore, through the Torah, we do not become recipients of the Holy Spirit. Only through this new covenant, a covenant of the kingdom, a covenant of perfection, and a covenant that will bring kingdom change into your life. And we're told, look now to verse 13, for in speaking about this, it's mentioned a tribe, but a tribe that Moses never spoke about in regard to the service of the altar. That's the tribe of Levite. Moses never spoke about what this is going to be speaking about. For there's something different. Verse 14. For it becomes revealed for all that our Lord, and notice this next word, very important. It's the Greek word that speaks of shining out. Something that illuminates. Now, again, this concept, it's related to exactly the message of the transfiguration. See, the Torah was testified by heaven with lights. You say, where is that found in the scripture? In the book of Exodus, chapter 
20, right after the giving of the Aseret Hadibroth, the Ten Commandments, we see that Mount Sinai was shaking, there was smoke, there was thundering, there was the sound of the trumpets, the shofars, and also lightning, light. But it simply testified to the holiness of God in Him giving the law to man. But, but when we look at the kingdom that comes through the new covenant, let me give you another scripture. After Yom HaKippur is the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the things that every synagogue will do on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles will read a prophetic reading from the book of Zechariah. And there it speaks about Sukkot. But before speaking about Sukkot, it mentions the kingdom. And it says that there's going to be light, but a unique light, a kingdom light. What type of light? Well, if you go back to Genesis 1, we know that the first thing that God created uniquely. Why do I say uniquely? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the general creation. They were tohu vevohu, empty, void, formless, but there was a change. The Spirit of God was there. God began to speak. And what was the first thing that was, was revealed? Light. But light, what we think of light, wasn't created until the fourth day. This is a unique light. And we see that same unique light mentioned in Zechariah chapter 14. Why? Well, there's a clue that the rabbis rightly understand that unites Genesis 1 and the purpose of Genesis 1, which was for a creation to be pleasing to God. That's what Genesis 1 wants, a creation pleasing to God. God worked, God, the Spirit moved, God spoke, and He saw that it was, behold, very good. That's a kingdom thought. And the first thing that, that was made in this kingdom was light. And when you look at Zechariah 14, it speaks about light, a unique light. And the connection is this. Well, let me ask you a question. What day did God create light according to Genesis 1? Not the, the fourth day, but the light that we're speaking about immediately when he says, Vayihi, or let there be light. What day was that? Sunday, okay, we don't, in, in the Bible, we don't have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We have the first day. But it doesn't say first day. It says one day, the word echad. Not the word we're shown, but echad. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because when you go to Zechariah 14 and it speaks about light, it says that there's again going to be that one day and the name of God is going to be one, what's important is that number one for uniqueness. And that word one also speaks about unity. That's the kingdom reality. A unity that comes only through redemption. See, redemption, one of the benefits of redemption is reconciliation. The Torah cannot reconcile. 
The Torah tells you and me of our need to be reconciled, but it can't bring it about. But there's a new covenant that can bring it about. So look again at verse 14. For it was revealed to all that our Lord, this is Messiah, he shined from Judah, the tribe, which Moses never spoke about that this order would be for a priesthood. Never do we see Moses revealing anything about Judah having a priesthood. And then he says, look at verse 15, it becomes even more clear, evident, that he should be established by means of someone, that is, he's going to be established, and he's going to be likened to Melchizedek. He's speaking about a different type of priesthood. And what's important about this priesthood? Well, verse 16, it's not a priesthood that comes through a statue by flesh and blood, but rather by means of a, hear this, a living power, a living power that does not end. What does that mean? Eternal. Now, if you come from a Jewish background, these words, eternal, now, one of the ways that we speak about the kingdom is with the word eternal. What's the Hebrew word eternal? Olam. It can mean world. It can mean all things, all time, every place. But it's a kingdom word. And when he speaks here, the original thought, without, ending, without ever ending, it's eternal. It's a kingdom covenant. And notice what it says. Look now to verse 16, the second part, or verse 17. For it testified unto him, this is God doing it, you are a priest. What does your Bible say? Forever. A kingdom concept. When you are a priest forever, it means you are this kingdom priest. You are a priest forever in the order of Malchizedek. What does that tell us? We're going to have eternal victory. What was unique about Malchizedek? He blessed Abraham. We're going to have the eternal blessings of God. All of that is superior to atonement. Only through atonement can we find limited, limited benefits only the limitation for a year of God's judgment, but with redemption, the work of our great high priest, we have perfection for eternity. And we have a pledge from God. Drop down to verse 21. For, for this, has, this priesthood, it didn't come without an oath, meaning it came with an oath. Who made that oath? God did. Says, for the Lord has sworn, and notice this next, this isn't going to change. This isn't going to be altered. This covenant, this new covenant, through the great high priest is forever. And there's no regretting it. 
He says, you are a priest forever, that kingdom concept, by the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, and also, this is through a better covenant. And we see here that it was established by Yeshua. He certified it. So if he certified it, we should have assurance. Now, I want to move into another area. If you were to ask me, what is the biblical chapter that speaks about the Day of Atonement, Yom HaKippurim? I would say Leviticus chapter 16. And there we see, also in Leviticus 23, we see that it's never called the Day of Atonement. Did you know that? It's not called the Day of Atonement. It's Yom HaKippurim, not Yom Kippur. Now, we all call it that, but biblically, Yom HaKippurim. What's the difference? That im on the end is plural. So we have to ask ourselves, why? And what we are told by Judaism is this, that the Day of Atonement has a greater purpose. It goes beyond just a simple understanding that the Day of Atonement has implications for this world, but it also teaches us truth concerning the kingdom of God. Now, when you look at Leviticus 16 and the work of the high priest, and now we're talking about the Levitical high priest, he had to do stuff. He had to go through an elaborate process in order that he was prepared to go into the Holy of Holies because he had sin. We've already talked about how Hebrews tell us that Messiah never sinned. Therefore, his process in order to secure redemption was different. But we also find that this, this atonement, this day of atonement also consisted of, of other, other rules. And this involved, and this is where we're going to focus in on what, what we need to learn before we conclude, and that is on two goats. Now, can you think of another place in the Scripture where, where goats are mentioned of significance? Well, on Sunday, in, in the area known as Barking here in London, we're going to be talking about two brothers, Yaakov and Asaph. And we're going to see that two goats were very important in that story of blessing. And these two goats were used in order for Yaakov to go before his father in order to secure blessing, a blessing for all those who are part of a covenant. What covenant? Well, Yaakov was concerned about what covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 16, that that seed of Abraham, that key, that foundation of the covenant, Abraham's covenant, is Messiah. He is the seed of Abraham. And that Abrahamic covenant is about one thing, 
What we should be thinking about with Abraham's covenant is blessing. That through you and your seed, that all the families of the earth, not just Israel. In fact, when that covenant was given, there was no Jewish people. You realize that? No Jewish people. No land of Israel. But through Abraham's faith, we see that God began to move and brought about revelation with Israel and a people that were connected to God blessing. So in Genesis chapter 27, Yaakov goes before his father and away with these skins of a goat in order to secure blessing. And that's what we learn about the Day of Atonement. The high priest, hear this, when we look at Leviticus chapter 16 and speaking about the high priest, it says, he was anointed. Same word, Mashach, where we get the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. There we see, even the rabbis understand, we learn about Messiah through the Day of Atonement that he was going to do something, and that is enable a people who were not blessable to be blessed by doing the work. So he was anointed for this purpose in order that he would go before his father in order to secure the right he earned it in order that a people might be blessed. Now, here's the difference. When we think of the Day of Atonement, we think about the fall. We think about that seventh month, Tishrei. But there is a hint in the New Covenant, in the Gospels, how Messiah, His work was going to be done at a different time for a different purpose. And what is that different time? In the first month. Why? The first month is the month of redemption. He didn't come to secure atonement for us. He wasn't interested about that which was limited. He came to do that which had no limitations. And when we talk about anything without limitations, we're speaking about God and His kingdom. That's what Messiah did. And He did that work in order to secure for us a blessing that you and I could never secure for ourselves. Never achieve that, nor could any Levitical priest do so. God had to make a change. Now hear this. Did that change surprise God? No. Did he always know that it was going to be necessary? Yes, he did. But he shows that through a covenant of flesh and blood, that's the Levitical priesthood, flesh and blood. That's why it had to be done over and over and over. And it was limited. It could not bring about anything that was related to perfection because it was done by man. God instructed it, but for the purpose of revelation to show us that through the work of man, we could never achieve that kingdom perfection. And that's why 
at the right time, we see that God, that incarnation, you know, we don't hear enough about that. One of the most important things that ever took place in this world is the incarnation. God leaving heaven through His Son, His only begotten Son, and coming for one purpose, and that is to do the work of redemption in order that we might experience that change, that kingdom change that turns us into the righteousness of God. And we see all that Messiah did was to secure that for us. That's why, and I'll close with this, you remember that on that first resurrection day, that, that Yeshua met some women. And he said to one, and I'm speaking of Miriam, Mary, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended. What was he referring to? Going in in the same way, the same way that the high priest had to go into a temple made by human hands in order to anoint and bring about a temporal change. The true high priest, the great high priest that passed through the heavens here, he had to ascend in order, not in the temple made by human hands, but by the real temple, to go and to secure for us, not atonement, but to secure for us on a day known as Rashid, which is a victorious day, to secure for us eternal redemption. What we see is this. The more that you study the festivals, those Lord's appointed days, the more that you're going to understand the person of Messiah and the work of Messiah. I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul, Shaul Hashlech, he wrote in Colossians chapter 2, he says, speaking about things such as Shabbat, the new moon, the beginning of a month, the timing of the dietary laws, Kashrut, and also, and for our purposes tonight, also the festivals. He says, these things are a shadow of what is coming. Those things, future things that are coming. You know what's so sad? The most used translation of the Bible in English is the New International Version. And if you look there, they translate it in a way that's insulting to God. Because this is what it says. These are a shadow of things that were to come, meaning no longer. Now, why is that so insulting? Because if you keep reading these future things, which are kingdom things, it says these are shadow, but what casts the shadow? What's the substance of these kingdom things? Messiah. So it's insulting to say these things which relate to Messiah were to be, but they're not. No, when you look at it in the original language, it says, these kingdom things which are coming, 
which are coming. And they relate to the king, they relate to Messiah. What does that mean? The more that you study and understand and apply the truth of these holidays to your life, the more that you're going to understand things related to the kingdom, and not just things related to the kingdom, but to the king of that kingdom, Messiah. That's why these festivals are foundational. Now, we were thinking about giving you a handout. And that handout had some good things because it showed that Messiah died. His crucifixion took place on Passover. That wasn't by chance. That was by God's design. We also see that Messiah rose from the dead on another biblical day. That day is called Rashid, which is the festival of the first fruits. And we know he poured out his spirit on Shavuot or Pentecost. So when we look at important things, the death, the burial taking place immediately before the first day of unleavened bread, his resurrection, his pouring out of the Spirit, all of this happened on festival times, festival days. You can't understand the person and the work of Messiah if you don't know these festivals. And now there's four other festivals, not seven, but four plus three plus one, eight in total. Why? What festival are we missing? Shabbat. That's also one of the eight festivals. These fall festivals, I am not, hear this, I am not saying that future things are going to happen on these festival days. But, here's the message, but we can learn about future events from understanding, understanding these fall festivals. There's so much wisdom in them. Don't ignore them. These are the Lord's appointed times. Cherish them. Study them. They are part of the people of faith. And too many believers ignore them. They are the Lord's appointed days. Father God, we praise you and thank you that you have given to us these days. Days that reflect your kingdom reality, your kingdom truth, and point to that King of Kings, Messiah Yeshua. Father, we want to walk in obedience to you. We want to have the truth that we might apply to our life, that we live righteously. We want to be individuals that declare what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do in order to fulfill all of your promises. For we know that you are a God that does not lie. So, Father, again, we pray that you might bless this congregation, bless those who have assembled here tonight.
in order that we might learn more about these days that are important and precious to you that you have designated for kingdom implications. In the blessed name of our Lord and our Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Amen.